Brilliant, thank you. Isn't it so good to hear from Herwin as well, overseas, someone with real authority to speak about this. Um, welcome, good morning, good morning online if you're here. I suspect we're lower in number for a couple of reasons. One, because it's pouring with rain, and also because the road was blocked. I was thinking this morning, I did run the Luton Half Marathon, do you remember it, a few years ago? But I'm glad it wasn't pouring with rain when I ran the Luton Half Marathon. So I was thinking of those who were running. I think Linda was there this morning, one person, uh, others as well, no doubt as well. Today is the second in three weeks that we're looking through three areas of justice issues which we've put on our website in, in Stopsley Baptist uh, Church website. You can find it under Transformation Justice. The first of those we talked about last week, racial justice. Today we're going to talk about the persecuted church. And next week, our eco-group are going to talk to us about environmental issues. Very pertinent, given the fact that obviously we should be praying this week for the conference that's about to begin in Glasgow. The results of that conference will affect all of us. And we need to be in prayer for that. But today, we're going to look at the persecuted church. So let me pray as we begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are safe to gather this morning. We pause. And we think that we do not want to take that lightly. Thank you that we are free to sing songs and to pray, to tell stories, to fast, to do all the things that we talked about. And even as we speak, Lord, we begin by remembering those for whom that is not the case, to strengthen them this morning. We'll pray further in a moment. Open our ears, Lord. We want to see Jesus and hear him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you've got the Bible, why don't you keep it open around those, that passage. We're in Acts. It's about 6 to the, the, the beginning of chapter 8 where the story of Stephen is. Has anyone said to you this week, oh, bless you. Oh, bless you. Or just simply bless as they go past. Or you've written an email, and at the end of the email, because you're Christian, you write, God bless you. And then you finish your email as you go along there. Blessing is a good thing, isn't it? And it's a light thing. We do it all the time in our language without really thinking about it. Oh, bless you. Thank you. Bless you. God bless you for that. But Jesus, as ever, has quite an unusual way of speaking about what it is to be blessed. If you turn to the beginning of Matthew's uh, great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, there we find the topsy-turvy blessings of the Beatitudes, a series of blessings. You are blessed if. God bless you, says Jesus. And here's the last one of those, uh, of those uh, Beatitudes. Blessed are you... When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So this week, has anybody treated you badly because you're a Christian? Have you been insulted this week because you've been a Christian? Or beaten up a little bit because you're a Christian? Well, if that's the case, God bless you. God bless you. That's what Jesus says. God bless you because of that. The persecuted church isn't a church that simply encounters difficulty in life. Well, I've not been feeling very well this week. I don't know what to do next in my life, and I feel a bit stressed by that. Stress is not persecution. It is what happens because we live in a fallen world, and it happens to us all. Persecution is what happens 
when you live out your faith openly, and there are consequences to that. You may experience persecution here because people will take the mickey out of you a little bit at times. I know that that's nothing compared to some of what Herwin was referring to, but nevertheless, that is the consequences of being open about you living out your life. People may violently disagree with you about something that you think about, and you have to take the consequences of that, and God will bless you as a result. The people that we've seen here, are, or the people in the persecuted, are blessed because they continue to proclaim and declare Jesus as Lord in their lives. They choose not to deny that. I wonder whether we do that. Day by day, we continue to declare Jesus as Lord, wherever we are, under whatever circumstances. In the Bible, there was a, a contrary, uh, um, contrary statement that people would make, which is that Caesar is Lord. I do what the emperor tells me. So to say Jesus is Lord was not just sticking up for what you believe, but was sticking up against something that other people said. And there were consequences to that. Proclaiming Jesus is Lord is likely to cause boat rocking ripples. It did in the Bible. It continues to do so today. And that's a challenging for those who are suffering because of that. And I want to say as well, surely, that's a challenging also for those of us who are not suffering. Jesus says in Matthew 5, as we said, that there is blessing in being persecuted because of him. But the Bible draws a closer parallel to Jesus than simply saying you'll be blessed because of Jesus. It actually says that you will be, you will be blessed when you are in Jesus, when you identify with him. Not simply because of what Jesus said, but because your identity is close with him. We know this because in Acts 8, the story of Saul, you remember Saul from that reading that we've got there? Saul who stood by and watched and gave his approval when Stephen was stoned. You know his, the story of his conversion, walking along the Damascus Road. And he's struck blind and he hears a voice from heaven that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? Is that what he says? Do you know what, the verse, what that verse is? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who do we think is speaking when the voice comes here? We think that that's Jesus, don't we? That's what we assume. But is Jesus, is Saul persecuting Jesus? No, he's persecuting the church. So what did the voice mean when it said, why are you persecuting me? I think this is really interesting. Basically, what is being said is that when you persecute the church, those who identify in Christ, you are persecuting Jesus. In other words, when we are persecuted, it's not just because of Jesus, it's because we are in Jesus. We represent him. We continue to carry his message. We continue to represent him on it. That is what causes the problems that here. To suffer because of Christ is to share in Christ's sufferings, it says in the New Testament. It is to be Christ-like, and it is to express the gospel as a result. Romans 8 makes this really, really clear. Quite challenging, I think. Now, if we are children, it says in Romans 8, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. 
We are heirs of Jesus if we share in his sufferings in order to share in his glories. Sufferings are not stuff because of the fact we're Christians, because we talk about Jesus. The sufferings are part of what it is to be Christians. They express the gospel. Suffering is right in the center of what the New Testament speaks. There is blessing in suffering because of Christ, because to do so is to identify with Jesus. It is to proclaim the gospel and to share in his glory. What do you think of that? It's a hard lesson this morning, isn't it, that? To suffer because of Jesus is to share in the gospel and to proclaim his message. That's what it says. So the passage that Dawn's read this morning gives us an example of how that works out in the New Testament. Stephen. I like to refer to Stephen, because he's my namesake, as the first Christian to get stoned. And if anybody knows about sort of popular drug references now, there's a little titter when I say that. Can I have a little titter? That's about the level it usually gets to. Stephen, the first Christian who got stoned. There he is. And his story spans, as I said, chapters 6 to 8 in the book of Acts. And it's because of the events surrounding his trial and his death that persecution breaks out in the church in Jerusalem, it says, and that church is scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Well, we find Stephen, don't we, dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, what that video said, that fire-breathing dragon, which is in fact the religious authorities, a kind of court that he was dragged in front of. And from what we see here, what happens to Stephen is very similar to what happened to Jesus in the last week of his life. It says that they called up false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. We spoke earlier about suffering in Christ. For Stephen, it seems that his trial itself is going back through exactly what happened to Jesus. There are false witnesses. The only difference is that Jesus suffered because of claims that he made about himself, didn't he? Whereas Stephen suffers because of claims that he stands by about Jesus. But the pattern is actually quite similar. And the problem comes because of these claims about Jesus. Jesus causes the problems. Whether you are talking about yourself, as Jesus did, or Stephen talked about it about Jesus, Jesus is the one who causes the problems. And at the heart of this, this, this trial are two things that Stephen talks about. He doesn't begin by attacking the people who are attacking him. In fact, he says, we've got a lot in common. Let's tell us the story about who we are. And he focuses on two things about the story. The first of them is about the law and the government, the way that they agree with each other. The law has been given by Moses, he said. And you've had this law. We all agree about this. And in the past, when you've been given the law, we all agree about this. Things didn't go very well. And even Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people, says Stephen. Someone else is coming, says Stephen. You believe that. I believe that. Someone else is coming because we're in trouble. Because the world is not the way it should be. Because the world stands under God's judgment and somebody needs to get us out of this situation. Someone is coming. And the second thing he talks about is this. He says that the temple, the place where God lives, turns out not to be 
the place where God lives. Even Solomon, he said, when he built the temple, prayed a prayer, and his prayer said, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? So Stephen picks up on these two things, the law and the failure of the law, and the temple and the inadequacy of the temple, and says, you know, Jesus spoke about both of these things. Moses even said someone is coming because the law's not working out. And God said, and Solomon said in his prayer that the temple can't hold God. So where is it that we find the faithful outworking of the law where we can be free? Where is the way that we can please God? How can we stand before God and be free? And where is God to be met? What accommodates God if it's not this building? And Stephen says, I know the answer to both of these things. And the answer to both of these things is Jesus. Jesus is identified identified as the lead actor in the play. And it's at that point when things start to get a bit tricky for him. They start to seize him. But the real tinder, the real spark that comes to him, comes when he identifies Jesus closely with God. And the same goes true today, doesn't it? Because nobody in society is going to get too upset with you if you go around talking about some of the things that Jesus said. Aren't they interesting? What do you think about that? But if you start then to say, furthermore, this Jesus is identified with God. He is Lord. Therefore, he puts demands on your life. This isn't a matter of what you think and your opinion. This is about what is true and what is not true. What are you going to do about that? It is when you do that, when you say that, that you really start to get in trouble. So in the story we've got here, you see, to identify Jesus with God was one of two things, wasn't it? This was obvious, even for Jesus. Either you were, you were blaspheming. That's obviously the case, isn't it? If, you, if I said to you that, I don't know, that Gary Lineker was God and went around proclaiming that, you'd say I was blaspheming because Gary Lineker isn't God. He's just a very nice man. But Jesus said things and did things. He never said, I am God. But he said things and did things that presumed a position that was very close to God. Either he was blaspheming, in which case he was tearing everything apart, or he was telling the truth, in which case you need to listen to him. That's the situation. And so Stephen has this vision at the point of his... And in the vision he says, I see Jesus... He's right next to God in heaven. He's his right-hand man. And the people can't stand this because it's blasphemy. You can't say this. And they start to, it says, to tear their hair. Persecution, you see, begins when people identify Jesus as Lord. As they express that in worship, we've done that this morning, haven't we? Do you know you've done that? You've expressed Jesus as Lord this morning. But what if the songs you've sung here you know, the things that Angela says here, la-di-da-di-da, actually starts, it's a bit more than la-di-da-di-da, I don't want to patronize you. Know. What if those things are just symbols? Things that we say now, which shape what's going to happen for the rest of the week. Can you see it ahead of you down here? Tomorrow morning, you sang here, Jesus is Lord, and tomorrow morning you're going to live that out. Unashamedly, tomorrow morning, Jesus is Lord. When you do that, problems start happening. Because you identify with Jesus. 
You see, such worship is more than singing songs. I'm going to come to that again at the end. In Stephen's case, what becomes clear is not only that suffering follows witness to Christ, but that suffering itself is part of that witness to Christ. His suffering, his dying, wasn't saying that I'm, I'm not speaking about Jesus anymore. It was turning up the volume on it. In exactly the way in which Jesus going to the cross was turning up the volume on what he really, really stood for. The cross wasn't a defeat, was it? The cross was intentional. So too, when Stephen stands there, he's not standing there thinking, oh well, that was good while it lasted, I'm gonna, it was a bit of a failure. He's turning up the volume, he's saying, you know why I'm dying? It's because Jesus is Lord and I've seen him. And that's where I'm going and I'm confident in this. It turned up the volume on his witness. His death isn't merely tragic, but communicates the gospel. That's what it does. And this is made even more specific because in the dying words of Stephen, he echoes the dying words of Jesus. Did you pick that up? He says two things when he dies. Did you notice that? The first thing he says is, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in Luke 23, that's precisely the words that Jesus said as he died. In other words, I am recapitulating. I'm going through again what Jesus went through. And I'm trusting God with my spirit. And then after that, just before he dies, he says, Father, don't forgive the people who are doing this because I don't want you to hold it against them. And Jesus, of course, said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Two of the words from the cross are echoed in what Stephen says here. The New Testament connects the word witness that we use quite a lot with the word martyr. Because in Greek, the word for witness is martyr. We witness to God most thoroughly when we die to ourselves in order that we can show the way towards Jesus. Isn't that true? I have to, a little confession to you. Come here. It's true. I don't know if it's true of you. I think I spend most of my time trying to witness to myself and how good I am. Trying to pull the wool over your eyes so you don't see my shortcomings. I just tell my story in a way that puts me in a good light. But actually, what I want to do as a witness is not put me in a good light, but turn up the light on Jesus. That's what makes us good witnesses. Some people in this world saying that, basically saying Jesus is Lord, not me, ends up with severe consequences. But I can tell you for a fact that if you take that seriously, there will be consequences for you. Not just bad ones either. There will be consequences because you will be walking closely with Christ. That's what happens when you do that. In Acts, the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, connects two events that come out of this, that you see in this story. One of them is because there's a man at his, at his martyrdom called Saul. You know that man, don't you? Saul is there. He turns out to be one of the greatest of the apostles. When we meet him, he's a man passionate about destroying the church. He stands there nonchalantly as a man is stoned to death and gives his approval to this. Good, another one shut up. That's what he's thinking. And yet, quite, quite soon after this, this is the man who becomes the greatest apostle and the greatest evangelist of the church. To be honest with you, if there is a proof within the Bible of, of our faith, to me, Paul's conversion is that proof. Why 
does a man who has a great career in persecution, who has the approval of all the people in authority, suddenly turn around and say, I was wrong. Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to give my life to proclaim this message. If he didn't meet Jesus, something happened to change that man's life. And it begins at this story. Secondly, the death of Stephen sees an outbreak of persecution that has two immediate effects. The first of them is this, that people are put in prison. That's what happens because of persecution. It says that people are dragged off and put in prison. Now, I'm not an expert on the, on the persecuted church. That's why I asked Herwin to say, what would the persecuted church say to us here if they were to come here? But I've, I've read a book, just, just, just the one or two, and I read a book about persecution. And the, the thing that, it remind, that, that I, I was struck by in that book was this, that usually in the West, when people hear about persecution, what we pray for is people's um, rescue from that situation. They will be delivered from their persecution. But most people who are experiencing persecution don't necessarily want that prayer to be prayed. What they want to be prayed is that God's will will be done through that situation. And if that means endurance through that situation, please pray for that. I want to remain faithful, is their prayer. Not, I want to get out of this. How often in our lives, in much less severe circumstances, have we felt, I want to get out of this? I just want to get out of this. Please pray, let me out of this situation. Rather than pray, would you give me endurance and faithfulness in this situation? Because I want to continue to say that Jesus is Lord. So that's the first thing. I don't say that lightly. I want to say this. I'm going to come to this in a moment. It is the most curious thing to stand here in this lovely venue um, talking to you, my friends, about persecution. And you can go home and say, well, that was quite an interesting talk that Steve gave today. What did you think about that thing he said there? And you talk about it for half an hour and forget about it and get on with your lives. There's an irony, isn't there, in that? We're talking about real people who are going through real suffering because of what they're going through. So we must not take lightly what we're doing today. So I'm unapologetic about the fact that the message today is a hard message. It is, what do you do if you truly live under proclaiming Jesus is Lord? If we truly worship God, what happens and how do we stand with that? But the second consequence of the persecution is this. The church scatters. The church goes to lots of different places. But this doesn't mean the end for the church. Quite the opposite. It means that the church starts to grow. I've written here and a sentence in this that's really made me think quite a lot this week. Persecution scatters the church like seed. And any institutionalizing momentum is interrupted and reinvested into mission. In other words, suddenly, because the church is scattered, they can no longer settle and try to make as comfortable as possible their worship experience and improve their worship band and do all the different things they do. Suddenly, the momentum is not about building an institution, but about going into mission and witnessing this. What would happen if that was true for us? if our institutionalizing instinct was interrupted and suddenly we were forced into mission. In the message, and I love this, I'll put this up here. This is a translation, or, a, or a, not a translation, a paraphrase. Mark was with me the other night, I'll get that right. <laughs> forced to leave home base, the followers of Jesus all became missionaries. Wherever they scattered, they preached the message about Jesus. What a great little challenge that verse is. Forced to leave home base... 
everyone became missionaries. They just talked about their faith wherever they went because they couldn't meet together in the way they used to. So we just have to talk to whoever we come to. What an extraordinary challenge that verse, I think, is. Worship, you see, has serious consequences. If we are to worship and say Jesus is Lord, and we mean that sincerely, then it will have consequences in the fact that we may suffer and, and be persecuted, experience difficulty, but it will also have consequences in mission. The video that we watched earlier, I'm almost at the end, everyone's coming back, I've overrun, sorry about this. The video we watched earlier reminded us that persecution isn't just a story from the Bible times, didn't it? And I've already said, I don't want this just to be a nice, comfortable talk that we can talk about. We'll pray in a moment about that as people come back in and we're going to pray. But I want you to think about the, the, the uh, vision statement that we've got. We are an extended family, growing and being transformed in Jesus Christ and sharing the good news wherever we go, yes? So in terms of persecution, what that means is that we pray for people who are persecuted because they're part of our family. Do we agree with that? Yeah? We pray with people who are persecuted because they're part of our family. We pray that they would grow and be transformed in Jesus even though they are persecuted and that we would grow and be transformed because we're praying for them. And we pray that the good news will be shared wherever we go as a consequence of this. So in a moment, we're going to turn to the worship team again, and they're going to sing a couple of songs, and they're going to be declaring the lordship of Christ. But I want you to pause for a minute before we go and do that. You're going to stand up in a minute, and Angela's going to say, let's sing this song. Jesus is Lord is at the center of this. I want to pray for you before we do that, that you will be brave. Because to, to sing that song is dangerous. If you truly want to sing and say Jesus is Lord, there may be consequences. Not because the person next to you has a bit of a dodgy voice and it might be a bit unpleasant, but because it's a symbol that we want to take into this week about what a living sacrifice truly is. And as we commit to do this, we recognize that identifying Jesus will not always lead to comfort or ease, may present a challenge for us. Fortunately, I think, we are not going to be waking up in severe persecution tomorrow morning. What do you think? Do you think you're going to be waking up tomorrow morning with people battering down your doors because they've heard you're a Christian? It's not going to happen. I quite often get a little bit anxious about the future. There's a little confession. My favorite quote from Abraham Lincoln is this. The best thing about the future is it comes one day at a time. I love that. It's true, isn't it? I don't think... Sometimes the future comes fast and it's hard to cope with. I've had a bit of that in the last 10 days. But most of the time, the future comes slow. I'm not ready for all of my children to have left home yet. I'm barely ready for one to have left home. But fortunately, it's not going to happen tomorrow. I'm not ready to be persecuted yet. Can I tell you that to you? I don't think I'm ready to be beaten up. But when it comes, it will come one day at a time if that's going to happen. And by God's grace, I will be ready when that time comes. So are you. So are you. If you walk closely with Jesus, you put your trust in him and you declare together Jesus is Lord. What do you think? Amen. Amen.